time. We are concluding a five-week series entitled Titan the Knot. And we've been kind of journeying through the Bible, studying different relationships and uh, different couples. And this week, we're going to wrap up our series before we kick off the new series next week. And we are going to be in the book of Genesis. So if you want to turn there, Genesis chapter number 16. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen. and uh, Or you can take the Bible that's directly in front of you. That Bible is our gift to you. If you'd like to have a copy, you can take that home. And every week, it's exciting. People grab those Bibles, and we just want you to have a copy of God's Word. We know you can download it, get the app. And I know a lot of people today, I say turn and they turn on their Bible and uh, they pull out their phones. That's totally great. And uh, we just want you to engage with this truth in God's word. We're going to be in Genesis chapter number 16. But when it comes to relationships and marriages, the stronger a marriage is, the stronger a family is, the stronger a family is, the stronger a neighborhood would be, the stronger a neighborhood would be, the stronger a city would be. And it's just the domino effect. But it all kind of starts right back at this thing called marriage. That's why we teach on it. We want to encourage you. We want you to feel like, man, they're just pouring into relationships so that you feel equipped so that you can go into a dating situation or you can go into engagement or you can go into marriage feeling like, man, I got some tools that'll help me to grow closer to not only my spouse, but also to God. So we kicked off week number one and we said, the honeymoon is over. And I shared the story about uh, Jane and I, when we were on our honeymoon, the honeymoon ended while we were on the honeymoon. It didn't take long and it was over real fast, just really fast. You can go on the podcast and you can listen to that embarrassing story. And uh, then we said, and when it came to the honeymoon being over, we said, we fall in love. Then we forget how to love, but then we've got to start fighting for love. And then week number two, we came back and we talked about ribs and relationships. How that sometimes when it comes to our relationship, we don't like what we're getting, but we need to look at what we're giving. Because it's not about what we're getting, it's about what we're giving because we're going to reap what we've sowed, what we've planted. It's going to come back. And so it was week number two. Week number three was a powerful message talking about the do-over and the power of forgiveness. And we had a pastor come in who had... uh, broken his marriage vows and he talked about how God had restored him and brought him back and you can listen to that message and then last week we looked at and we talked to all our awesome singles and I hate that we have to label you guys and and I was there for the longest time just thinking I'll never get married I'll never be in a relationship and I'd say that over and over and I know what it feels like because he just it just seems like, man, everybody else is getting married around you. And then you want to be happy for them, but you're not. And then they ask you to be a bridesmaid. And you're just like, oh, I really don't want to be in their wedding. You know, I don't even want to go. I just hate weddings. And you just don't want anything to do with, you know, you pass by David's bridal. You're just like, I hope it would just burn down. Like just, just spontaneously fire from heaven. You just don't want anything to do with weddings, right? You're just a little bit jaded, just a little bit. And so we talked about the right one. And we talked about the right one myth, how it's a myth. And we talked about that our one needs to be God and God is our one and that future spouse is our two. Because once you find that spouse, if you don't understand that that's your number two, you're going to mess it, mess it up. And so we said, hey, I'm going to pursue my two. And that's what we talked about last week. But this week we're going to be in Genesis chapter number 16. And we're asking ourselves a very important and big question. And that is, how do we tighten the knot once we tied the knot? How do we tighten that knot once we've tied it? Because the wedding day is where we tied the knot. Marriage is where we tighten it. And so we're looking at, hey, how do we do that? And then so we keep drilling down on this. 
And I'm going to start with kind of a messed up illustration. And it starts with a counselor sitting down with a married couple. And then the married couple is there. And uh, so the counselor is going to talk to him. And the wife comes in first and she sits at one end of the couch. And then the husband comes in a little bit later. And he sits, he's about to sit next to his wife in the, the couple's counseling. He's about to sit down and she gives him that look. And so all of a sudden he goes to the other side of the couch. He, and then he sits down, he kind of turns towards her, and then he start, starts to, you know, subtly put his hand out towards her, and then she gives him that look like, don't you even think about it, you know? It's like, no. And so immediately the counselor's looking at the couple, and he's realizing this, this couple, man, there's some tension. It's thick. I mean, you can cut it with a knife in this room. And so the, the counselor says to the couple and, sound, and says, sounds like you guys have communication problems. Immediately, the husband jumps up and says, yes, we have communication problems. She won't look at me. She won't talk to me. She won't acknowledge me. She just ignores me. She acts like I don't even exist. And the counselor looked at the wife and said, is this true? She looked at the counselor and said, yes. And here's the saddest part. She said, because my mother taught me never to talk to strangers. And isn't that what can happen in a marriage relationship? That you can go from being soulmates to merely just roommates. That person that you stood at an altar with, that you said, I will love you till death do us part. And all of a sudden, you're kind of wishing that death might come real quickly for one of you. You're just wishing that Mack truck as they're crossing the street just might. You know, and it, you say, those are on your bad days, you know. And you're like, no, it's a typical Wednesday for me, you know. And I don't know where your relationship is at, but I'm hoping this message will encourage you because the title of this message is Hope restored it's hope restored because you may be at a place where you just feel like i just i don't know if there's any hope left and i want you to look at a very messy relationship a very messy couple and i hope it gives you inspiration not only is this a very messy couple but you're going to see for this couple that they are what we would call the patriarchs of the faith kind of the founders of our faith and you're going to see a snapshot into their life so once again let's go to genesis 16 and let's dive right in start in verse number 1 now sarai abram's wife had not been able to bear children for him but she had an egyptian servant named Hagar. Now, just a second, in case you're not familiar with the Bible, let me just fill you in real quick. God had promised Abraham and Sarah a multitude of descendants. These are the fathers of the nation of Israel, and so it's just a nomadic tribe. God called them out of the land that they were living, and God just called them out and said, hey, I'm going to bless your offspring. And this is what God said. God said to Abraham, your descendants are going to be so numerous, they're going to be like the stars in heaven. That's how many children you're going to have and grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren. But then he didn't just stop at the stars in heaven. He said, hey, look at the ground. They were nomadic tribes, people wandering the desert. And so you could imagine the amount of sand that they encounter on a daily basis. And so God said, Abram, look down. Do you see all the sand? He said, your descendants are going to be like the sand of the seashore. You can't count it. So God was basically saying, hey, as far as you look up, guess what? There's a promise of my covenant with you. But then there will be moments in the, the relationship, in the marriage, where you're not going to be able to look up, and we've all been there. Where we feel like, man, I just want to look up to God, but we just, we're tired, and we just, we don't want to look up. So we're, we find ourselves looking down more than we find ourselves looking up. And so God gave a second reminder. When those moments you don't feel like you can look up in joy and thankfulness and praise, you just find your head down. God said, there's another reminder. 
There's the dirt. There's the sand. Guess what? Just like the grains of sand for your children. So here's that promise that God has given. But hey, and but here uh, Sarah is getting nervous because she can't be a part of this. She's trying, but nothing's happening. Verse number two. Sarah said to Abram, "The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her." And Abraham agreed with Sarah's proposal. Surprise! Surprise! I don't think any of us were like, oh, no. Oh, no, he's going to say no. Like, isn't the Bible just kind of real? Like, it just kind of goes there? That's kind of refreshing that the Bible just kind of puts it out there. You know, I can imagine that conversation, how that went down. He's like, honey, this is the best idea I think you've you've ever had. Like, this is a really good idea. I'm sure it's going to work. You know, I mean, is he going to say no? No, he doesn't. He, and you could see him being very tactful. Well, honey, if, if this is what you want, if this, if this is good for us, you know, I mean, it just kind of puts it out there. Verse number three. So Sarah, Abram's wife took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarah, with contempt. Then Sarah said to Abraham, this is all your fault. Once again, surprise, surprise. We saw that coming, didn't we? It's like every person here just kind of knew, Abraham, just don't, just, just don't, just, just don't. Say no, just say no. It's like your wife says, oh, did you notice her? What? No, no. There's, you're the only eyes for you. You don't see anybody else. Did you think she's distracted? No, ugly. She's ter- super ugly. You know, it just doesn't matter. We just, any other girl out there is just ugly except the one you're with, okay? So here, then she says, this is all your fault, Abraham. I put my servant into your arms, but now she's pregnant. She treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Abram replied, look, she is your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarah treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness, along the road to Shur. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarah's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah replied. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. And the angel said, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. And you shall name him. Ishmael, which means God hears, for the Lord heard your cry of distress. Wow. I hope we can find hope in that. That here is a very messy situation, but yet God still speaks into the mess. So I don't know where you find yourself this morning, but I hope you can take encouragement that God wants to speak to you. So here's what I want to do. We've prayed, and prayer is very important, but I want us to pray again. But I want the posture of our hearts to reflect what we want God to do. And it's a simple prayer. I'm going to pray it out loud, but here's our prayer. And here's what I'd like for you to do. If your spouse or boyfriend, fiance is with you, would you just grab their hand? And here's the prayer we want to pray this morning. And this is it. It's, dear God, you are welcome to work. And that's it. That's the prayer I want you to go into this message with. It's simple. God, you are welcome to work in here. That, God, I need you to work. And so now let's dive into this message. You see, here's a couple, and immediately they start to have some conflict, some rifts. And you and I, sometimes, we can get into a relationship thinking there's not going to be conflict. But here's what I want to tell you this morning. You do not live on a planet by yourself. You live around people. So there's conflict everywhere. 
But here's what I'd love for you to write down because note takers are history makers. Conflict is inevitable, but combat is optional. I want you to hear it again. Conflict is inevitable, but combat is optional. You see, you're going to go through something in your relationship. You're going to go through conflict, but guess what? It doesn't have to turn into a combative nature. It doesn't have to escalate. It doesn't have to. Now, I know some of you, you got into a relationship and you're just kind of taken aback by the fact that there's so much conflict. And it's because you're surprised by it because you believe what I call love's lies. You say, what do you mean love's lies? Let me just read a couple of them for you. Because the first one is marriage is easy when you find the right one. That's the biggest lie I see a lot of couples fall for. That marriage is easy when you find the right one. The problem is, and we said it last week, there is no right one that's a myth. God is your number one. Everyone else is your number two. And so many times we hop from relationship, from relationship, person to person, because we're thinking it'll be easy if I'm with the right person. Here's the problem. There's no person in your life that it's ever just been easy to get along with. You were brought up in a home. You had parents. Guess what? They weren't always easy. There are moments that were easier than others, but it wasn't always easy. There was conflict. If you had siblings, guess what? There was conflict. There's always conflict. Uh, if there is um, uh, uh, coworkers, there's conflict. If you have relatives, there's conflict. If you have a boss, there's conflict. If you have employees, there's conflict. Every person you interact with, there's going to be conflict in whatever sphere of life you find yourself. So for you to assume that if I'm with the right one, marriage will be easy is a lie of love. And a lot of people fall for it. So that's the first lie. The second lie is this. Conflict is a sign of a troubled relationship. A lot of people, they feel like our relationship doomed. There's conflict. No, no, no. When there's conflict, that means you're just finding out people's boundaries. That all of a sudden, you're figuring out new boundaries of what you can and what you can't do. It's the lines of demarcation. So for you to assume, oh, we have conflict, our relationship is doomed, you're setting yourself up for failure. Here's what's happening. You're actually getting better at relationships. Nothing new that you ever started doing just came natural and just easy. No, everything was learned. It was a skill. It had to be developed. So one of love's lies is that conflict is a sign of a troubled relationship. Here's another one. Romance and passion will always be alive in a good marriage. That there'll always be romance. There'll always be passion. But the truth is there won't always. Especially once you start having children. Especially once kids get into the picture. Uh, there's a really sad joke. And throughout this series, I've been giving you a lot of bad jokes. So I'm going to use my last and final joke. You see, when you first got married, when it came to intimacy, it was tri-weekly. Try weekly. So three times. Try weekly. Then, once there was kids, it became try weekly. Try. <laughs> let's see if we can get this in. You know, try. Let's, let's try to squeeze it in. And then you get a little bit older, and it's try weekly. It's just try. You're just trying to bear through it. You're just like, okay, let's just see if we can get through it. I promise that was the last bad joke for the series. We can clap. We can applaud. The bad jokes are over. Yes, yes, the bad jokes are over. You see, when it comes to this, we just think there's always going to be passion and romance, but guess what? You have children or you have jobs or guess what? Your spouse gets sick and it always doesn't seem like very tempting. You know, there's those moments where he just kind of comes out and he's scratching his belly. Oh, I want to be intimate. No, no. When's the last time you took a shower? I don't know. You know what I mean? It's just like, no, 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 no. I'm not really feeling it, you know? And so there, this, this thought that there'll always be romance is a, love, is a lie of love. Here's another one. Your spouses will naturally draw closer together. Just naturally. Things don't naturally get better. Nothing in your life naturally gets better. You have to work at it. Here's another one. Marriage is about being happy. 
Now, I will say marriage brings a lot of happiness, but it's not about being happy. Because happiness is based on what happens to me. And guess what? That changes, doesn't it? It changes. So if marriage is about my happiness, which is centered on my selfishness because it has to do with me. And that's the enemy of a relationship, that it's all about me. And what's killing a lot of relationships, what's killing a lot of marriages is the selfishness factor. That we just made it all about us because we thought, man, marriage is about happiness, so it's all about my happiness. And instead of focusing on the happiness and the joy of others. Here's another one. Love is self-sustaining. That love will just always be there. No, there'll be times where you have to work at love. Here's another one. Differences are the problems in most marriages. So these are the, the, the lies of love that we just fall for. And maybe it comes to Abraham and Sarah, and they had fallen for some of these. They just thought, man, this is just going to be easy. Maybe that's where you are. But immediately, notice something that Sarah does. I see in verse number 2, she says, I can't get pregnant. And then she says, the Lord has prevented me from getting pregnant. So notice what she does. She can't have a child, so who does she blame? God. But then once they do find out they're expecting a child, who does she blame and blame next in verse number five? Abraham. You know, here's something I want you to do. And this is, you can get mad and offended at me, but I want you to touch your neighbor and say, stop the BS. Stop the BS. Stop the BS. Stop the BS. And all of a sudden you're like, what is this church? Now BS doesn't stand for what you think it stands for. It means stop the blame shifting. Stop the blame shifting. Because don't you see that's what she was doing? It wasn't Sarah's fault. It's God's fault. And if it's not God's fault, guess whose fault it is? It's her husband's fault. You see, she's blaming everybody but her. You see what happens? Don't we do that in the relationship? I am famous. Personally, just being truthfully here, I am famous for blame shifting. Now, I have three children, so there's three reasons why it's not my fault, why we're not on time, why something didn't get done, or why something's messy, or why something's broken. I got three reasons, and man, they always usually work, you know, when it comes to children. But I love to blame shift. I love to not be guilty. I love not to be wrong, and so that's what we do. But it's destructive to a relationship. You want to take the conflict, and you want to turn it combative? Start blame shifting. Just blame. Oh, man, we're never on time. It's all your fault. You spend so much time getting yourself fixed up. And then we come back and we complain. Why don't you fix yourself up more often? Like, you see what we do? Like, when they do it, we're mad because now we're late. And then when they don't do it, we're mad because they don't do it enough. Or, man, I want you to go to the gym. They start going to the gym. You're at the gym too much. I don't know what to say. What do we do? We start blaming. We start passing off the blame. Instead of simply saying, you know what? We're not going to blame here. Because ultimately, whose idea was it? It was Sarah's. Who was the one that was not trusting God? It was Sarah. Now, Abraham should have stepped in, but that's what happens, doesn't it? So first of all, we see conflict is inevitable and combat is optional. But notice this. Please write this down. Some things only work on the surface. Sarah's idea worked, didn't it? Her idea didn't involve God, and it worked. See, I see this happen in our relationships. We say, my spouse is not treating me how I want. I know how to make this work. So we start to use manipulation. Sometimes we'll withhold intimacy, or if you're a single income earner household, you'll say, I'm not going to give you any money to spend unless you do this for me. You see, we can make things work. Sarah made something work. Oh, God, you gave me that promise? I, I can fix this for us. We don't have a baby? Oh, not a problem. 
Not a problem. I got this one solved. But here's the, here's the problem. It only works on the surface. You see, sometimes we want to get into a relationship so bad, we'll just hop into any old relationship, even though he's not good for us, she's not good for us, even though it's not going to help us in the direction we want to go. We'll just jump into it. Why? Because we just want the fix. We just want the solution solved. And man, you're like, I solved it, but you only solved it on the surface. You see, she only fixed it at one level. You see, God didn't have that as his plan. See, God doesn't want to set you up so you only have surface success. He wants to take you deeper. The Bible calls it that at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what God wants to give you. But when you shortchange the process, you're skipping God's payday for you. You're skipping God's blessing for you. Why? Because you want to jump ahead. And that's what culture says today, isn't it? Culture says, hey, just go for it. Cross the line, break some boundaries. Just do what makes you feel good. Follow your heart. Your heart won't lead you astray. That's so contrary to what God and his word has to say. My heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? My heart will trick me and deceive me. Hey, you know, I am famous for misjudging the situation. Famous for it. I'll totally read something totally wrong. So I can't even trust my own judgment about a situation. I'll go to my wife and I'll say, here's what I'm feeling. And then she'll tell me, you're way off. You're way off. Why? Because her meter reader, whatever God gave her intuition is so much better, so much more in tune than mine. So I have to make sure I'm seeing things right. And you may be in a situation where you're not seeing it right. And you just want this quick fix. And what does it really come down to? What it really comes down to is Sarah was acting out of fear and not faith. And here's where a lot of relationships devolve to. They kind of start just acting out of fear. And because of fear, it leads us to isolation. You see, what, what did Sarah do? Did she consult God on this matter? Say, hey, God, it's been 10 years. We haven't had a child. God, what do you want us to do? She doesn't consult God. You see, fear leads to isolation. Faith leads to intimacy. Faith leads to intimacy. So when you and your relationship are acting in faith, then you will find that there's intimacy. But when you're operating out of fear, you'll find there's isolation. You will isolate yourself from your spouse. You will isolate yourself from God. You will isolate yourself from your life group. You will isolate yourself from church. You will isolate yourself from his word. You will isolate yourself from prayer and praise. You will just find that you're way over here and you're just doing your own thing. And then you're going to look for people that also are isolated and you're going to get your advice from them. I wasn't allowed, this is funny. I wasn't allowed to watch the show growing up called Friends. And uh, maybe for good reason. But Jane and I, we just started picking it up. We've never seen it before. And so we just started. And I was like, wow, this show is so bad. It's so bad. I mean, it's kind of funny, but it's so bad. Because why? They're getting marriage and dating advice from each other. And they're all single. And none of them have had a good relationship. And they make fun of each other the entire time that they're not good at relationships. But yet they keep going back to that source for help. And some of us are just like that. We keep going to broken down sources, getting our advice. Instead of saying, wait a minute, where's a stable, Christ-honoring, God-fearing relationship that I can get some advice from? We're going to these broken sources. Instead of saying, wait a minute, God's got a better source. Why? Because we're acting out of fear and not faith. So this morning, the challenge is, hey, in my relationships, is this just a, a... a reaction of fear or is this a reaction of faith? So first of all, fear will lead to isolation. Faith leads to intimacy. Second, fear will lead to selfishness. Faith will lead to serving. You see, if you will serve them, you will see them change. The enemy of unity is individuality. And so what we have is we don't have people who are fighting for each other. They're fighting for their own needs and desires. It's selfishness. When we start living our marriages out of fear, we get selfish. When you got married and when I got married, we probably had a unity candle. Jane and I had the unity candle. How many people, you had a unity candle? Just curious, you lit the unity candle. Several in there, you did the unity candle. And uh, so when it came to the unity candle, what was really cool was there was actually three candles. 
okay? There is the two, one representing the spouse, one representing the groom, and then the, the one representing the new couple, correct? And something interesting happened. Jane and I, we each grabbed one of the candles representing our lives, and then we both lit the unity candle. Now, you know what we did with that other candle that we lit the unity candle with? We blew it out. Signifying, I'm dying, so this can live. What happens is we are acting like it's a trick candle. Ever had a trick candle? You blew it out. A few seconds later, it comes back alive. You see, what you did is you went, and you put it behind your back, and it lights back up. And guess what's going to happen tomorrow? That candle's going to go right back on. Guess what's going to happen on Tuesday? That candle's going to go right back on. Oh, today at church, oh, we're at church. We got our Bible and we're, oh, baby, this candle's out. Where do you want to go to the restaurant? It doesn't matter. Oh, baby, what do you want to do today? It doesn't matter. You want to clean the house? It is out, but then tomorrow, where's my breakfast in bed? Why are the kids late? Why are we doing this? And then all of a sudden, it's back to our candle, back to what we want. Every day, we've got to come back and say, this candle's out. I blew it out. I'm dying to my desires and my needs. Why? So I can serve you because I'm not going to live out of fear. I'm going to live out of faith. And so for faith to live, I got to extinguish this candle of selfishness. Why? So I can be focused on you. What happens is we get focused on our needs and our desires and they come back. You see, marriage is a lifelong battle against selfishness. You see, fear will lead to manipulation. Faith leads to mutual submission. When's the last time you asked yourself, what can I do be a better spouse? What can I do to be a better boyfriend? What can I do to be a better fiance? When's the last time you asked yourself that question? Oh, we're constantly asking it of the other person. We love reading Ephesians 5 if we grew up in the church because we love what it means to our spouse has to do, but we don't like what it means for us to do. We always are thinking about them. Oh, this message is good for that person. It's good for my spouse. I really hope they're listening. I'm going to take extra notes for them. I'm going to rib them. And I'm just going to make sure you listen to this. You, you know, and paying attention. You're taking their phone and everything. Stay focused. It's really good for you. And we miss out the fact that, wait a minute, there needs to be this mutual submission. That's what happens when we're living out of faith. You see, also fear leads me to, uh, leads to me. Faith leads to we. But what happens is oftentimes me is always over we. It's always about me and not we. And here's the big thing. I don't know about you, but growing up, my parents always would say this. We'd go over to somebody's house or we'd borrow something. My parents would say, Micaiah, leave something better than when you found it. Did your parents ever say something like that to you? Leave this room cleaner than you found it. Leave the car with more gas in it than when you found it picked it up. And can I get an amen on that? Some of you let your children buy the, borrow the car and it's empty. It's just empty. You're just like, wow, I don't know what happened. I had a full tank and now it's just empty. Uh, I had a full refrigerator. Now it's empty. You know, I had a full bank account. Now it's just empty. Everything's just empty. Have you just noticed that it just kind of happens once you have other people in your life. And so now we're asking ourselves the question, hey, what can I do so I can be a better person to live with? So does that mean making the bed? Does that mean giving a back massage? Does that mean being there for that person? What does it mean for me to be a better spouse to that person? Because I want to be easier to live with, better to live with, where every day they just think, man, I am lucky to be married to you. You see, it used to be that we were so excited to be with that person. And then we wake up and it's like, this is a stranger in my house. And so we want to get back to where we see God. But then let's stop for a second. Let's look at this character by the name of Hagar. Sarah made Hagar's life so miserable that Hagar's like, I'm out. 
I can't stay. So Hagar leaves. And many of us, we maybe feel like that. We feel like the environment was so toxic, so bad, I was forced out. I didn't want to leave, but I was just forced out. I was forced out of the marriage. I was forced out of the relationship. I was forced out of the job. I was forced out of the situation. I was forced out. And what happens is we can now be defined by it. But I want you to get this. Don't be defined by who threw you out, but by who took you in. Who met Hagar in the wilderness? It was God. See, God's not abandoning you. You may feel like I've been after relationship after relationship and I feel rejected, I feel dejected and God's not here to say, yeah, here you go, one more bad relationship. I hope you you experience all that pain. No, God is here to tell you this morning that it's not about who threw you out. It's about who took you in and Jesus took you in. Jesus met her in the desert. Jesus was there. Jesus didn't abandon her. Jesus said, I'm gonna meet the needs that you have. Jesus even went and spoke to her and said, hey, guess what, Hagar? You know that promise I made for Abraham? Guess what? I'm going to give it to you as well. Your descendants are going to be numerous. So God gave her a blessing. So don't be defined by who threw you out, but by who took you in. But here's what culture does. Too often I see this even among people that you claim to follow Christ is we start acting like a lot like culture. You see, culture does exactly what Hagar did. The situation becomes rough. You know what we do? Culture says, run from it. That's what culture says. You don't like the situation you're in. You don't like the environment. Guess what? Just run. Just run from it. Get away. Get away from that person. Get away from them. They don't treat you like you deserve. But what did Jesus tell Hagar to do? Go back to her. See, here's what Jesus was in effect saying. Fight for it. Fight for it. And if there is anything I can say to you this morning to wrap up our series is I want you to fight for it. That not you don't give up on it. That you say, I'm going to fight for this relationship. When everybody else is telling you, just give up, just walk away. That you hear the sweet whisper of the Holy Spirit saying, fight. Don't give up yet. Don't walk away yet. Or there's this voice that culture says. Trade up. Get you a new model. Get you a younger model. Get you a curvier model. Get yourself a richer model. Get yourself a model that has a job. Get your model, get yourself a model that has a life, a personality, you know. Get yourself whatever, but trade up. Come on, you can do better than him. You can do better than her. And so we're told to trade up. That's what culture's saying right now, isn't it? It's saying, hey, trade up. You can do better. But what was God saying to her? God was saying, hey, your descendants are going to be like the stars. And he was reminding Hagar of what he had. What was God saying? Hey, don't trade up. Look up. And that's where we need to understand that God doesn't want us to just trade up right now. And you may find yourself in that situation where you're just really tempted to trade up. Where God is saying, don't trade up. Look up. Look up what I'm doing. Look up what I'm saying. Here's the last one. Some of you, this is where you feel culture will tell you. Get out. But I hope you hear the voice of God saying, get help. Get help. Don't give up on this thing. You're not alone. But what happens is we feel like I can't make it. But what did God give her? And this is what God gave Hagar that was so powerful why she could go back. God gave Hagar a vision. 
And this is what you need because the day you stood at that altar, the day that you will stand at that altar, the day that you will make those vows, you will make those promises, you are going to be given a vision. And that's what I want to drill down in the last few seconds that we have together is there's that vision and let the vision fuel your victory. That when it comes to your relationship, when it comes to your marriage, that when it comes to what God wants to do, that you are dialed into that vision, that you say, you know what, God, you've given me a picture. I just read a book by Chip Gaines. I don't know if any of you used to watch the Fixer Upper show about the Gaines in Waco, Texas and Magnolia, their story. But there was one quote that stayed with me in that book. It was so powerful. And this is what he said. He said, you may give up your day job, but don't give up your daydream. And what I want to say to you this morning is you may be feeling like, I just want to give up on this vision. I don't want you to give up yet. I don't want you to quit. You may be single thinking, I don't know if there's that person out there. And I want to say to you, there is that person out there. You may be in a relationship. You don't feel like it's going to last. I want to say it is going to last. You can make it. Don't walk away. You may feel like you're bad at love this morning. And you may think, I can't stay in a relationship. I want to tell you, you can. God will help you. I was listening to a coach at Alabama State football, and he was talking to some people, and they were asking him questions about what makes a great football team. And he looks at his athletic trainer that's in the locker room, and he points to him and says, hey, tell him what makes a great football player. And this athletic trainer, former United States Marine, he comes out, and this guy's just huge, he's big, but he had a real deep, raspy voice because he had just uh, blown out his vocal cords, yelling and screaming. And he goes up and he just talks real animated. He's got that voice like this. And he's like, what makes a winning football player is the player that will touch the line. And everybody just kind of was like, what? Like they were experiencing, expecting some great truth, like deep, profound truth. And they were like, touch the line? And then he went on to explain, he says, what happens is when you're tired in training and when you're doing those wind sprints, you're supposed to touch the line. The player won't touch the line. They'll just kind of go like that and then they'll run back and they don't even touch it. They just kind of reach for it and they don't touch it. He says, we want our players to touch the line. And he kept saying it over. He said, because if they'll touch the line in practice when they're tired in the fourth quarter and we're down by three points and we need a touchdown, we need them to touch the line on the end zone. And if they don't touch the line in practice, they won't touch the line in the game. So touch the line. (laughs) What I want to say this morning is touch the line in your marriage. I feel like too often we've been married five, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. That's our anniversary. Let's go out to eat. Oh, it's Valentine's Day. You want flowers? Oh, it's your birthday. What do you want to do? You know, and just, oh, it's another day. You know, just, you're just God's gift to me. That's not a big deal. And what do we do? We stop touching the line. You're just some guy. You're just some girl. We just happen to be together. By the way, what are we going to do today? Did you pay the bills? And we stop touching the line. We stop saying, hey, I love you sacrificially. I will die for you as Christ commanded me to die for you. I will submit to you as Christ commanded me to submit to you. I will go the extra mile for you. I will do what you need. I will serve you. I will lay down my life for you. I will do whatever you need. But I will touch the line. On the days that it's easy, I will touch the line. On the days that it's hard, I will touch that line. The days I feel like it, I will touch the line. The days that I don't feel like it, I will touch that line. 
cut line because I'm going to go every step in this relationship because it's too soon to quit and it's too soon for you to walk out of your marriage. It's too soon for you to walk out of the relationship. I'm asking you, church, to touch the line. I'm asking you to go all the way. I'm asking you to go the distance because anybody can have a relationship like culture and just split apart and break up. But I'm looking for a church filled with people who have the power of God on their life, who have the power of the Holy Spirit beating inside of their chest, who say, like Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. I don't need a motivational coach. I don't need a motivational speaker. I have the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords inside of me. And he's telling me, touch the line in my marriage. He's telling me, touch the line in this relationship. He's telling me, don't lose sight of church. Don't lose sight of his word. Don't lose sight of prayer. Don't lose sight of praise. Don't lose sight of worship because God is working and I'm not going to listen to culture. I'm going to listen to Christ and what he has for my life. And I'm going to keep giving. I'm going to keep serving because that's what matters at the end of the day. And I want Christ to be glorified and lifted in my life this morning. That's what the world needs. Two weeks ago, I got to be a part of a wedding between Damien and Amy Montgomery. And it was a traditional Scottish wedding. And I love weddings. I love seeing it. But the best part was when they said their vows. The Scottish culture, you touch a stone when you say your vows. You touch a stone. Meaning our vows are etched in stone. They're permanent. I can't break these vows. They're etched in stone. When Joshua was giving his last and final speech to the people of Israel before he died, he said, choose you this day whom you will serve. And the people said, Joshua, we will serve your God, we promise. The Bible says that Joshua took a great stone. He said, this stone has heard your vow. And the Bible says he took that stone and he put it under an oak tree. He said, these vows are written on stone. Your relationship is going to go through rocky times. But it's okay if it's built on the rock. He put it under an oak tree. A strong tree. The rock is at the base of a wooden tree. Our lives will be lived at the base of a wooden cross. Where we say grace went there for me. Love went there for me. Sacrifice went there for me. My vows, that's where they're made. They were made at the tree. They're made at the cross where we understand that these vows weren't for the people that showed up. I made these vows in front of God. And God will sustain these vows. Can we all stand to our feet this morning? I feel that God is working in this place. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you agree with God in this place and the word that was said, stretch out your hands towards heaven. If you are in full agreement with the word that you have heard, if you're in agreement with what God wants to do in your relationships and in your marriage, stretch out a hand with a posture of surrender that says, God, you are welcome to work in this heart. God, you're welcome to work in this marriage. God, you're welcome to work in my life. God, I surrender my will to you. I no longer will live in fear, but I will live in faith because faith conquers fear and perfect love casts out the fear that's in my heart. So God, I will no longer walk in fear in this marriage. this relationship. God, I will walk in faith, a faith that is selfless, a faith that gives, a faith that sacrifices, a faith that loves. And so, Father, we pray for these hands that are lifted. We pray for these hearts that are surrendered. Father, I pray for every marriage in this room. I pray for every single person in this room. I pray for every divorcee in this room. I pray for every hurting person in this room. I pray for every person that's without hope, that has no joy, that has no peace. I pray that they would find Jesus. They would experience life to 
the full. I pray that they would understand that they're not here by accident. I pray that you would fill their dark places of their heart where they would experience a resurrected Savior this morning. Father, we pray this in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said.